Well, if you would, we're moving along in the book of Romans, and if you feel like opening your Bible, it's uh, on page 941. We're looking at Romans chapter 4, all of chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. That's a lot to cover. We won't go into all the details, um, but we will, um, I think we're going to find some um, really good words from, from God to us today. The sermon is titled, The Good News Before Christ. <laughs> What, we, what we'll see is that the gospel or the good news of God was experienced long before Christ. How so? Well, today Paul turns our attention to Abraham. And a point that Paul is making is that Abraham is not just the physical father of the family of God, that is, according to the flesh, um, but he's also the, the spiritual father of all God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. And so the people of God share the same DNA. There's something present in all of us. What is it? Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before He was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before He was circumcised for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. As we look back in time, as we look back through our family tree, we see what has brought us all together. A man named Abraham, a man of faith, a man that you gave grace towards, that all this world may be blessed through him. May we understand more fully this gift of grace and this righteousness that is counted to us through Jesus Christ. And may we walk in faith as well, we pray. Amen. Isn't it true that, like, families have their own distinct characteristics? Like, you know, some families you could just maybe sum up with, like, one word. When I was growing up in my neighborhood uh, back in St. Louis, back in the 70s, uh, there was one family, the Gnidic family. They had this large corner lot, and there was always uh, loud music playing outside, and there was old beat-up muscle cars in the driveway and in the yard and all the way out into the street. Uh, there was a smell of smoke in the air all the time. I'm not quite sure what that smoke was back then, but... Uh, Let me put it this way. My parents didn't have to tell me to avoid their house, right? If I was on my bike and I'm riding by and the Gennadics were out, I just turned around and went back the other way. And even if they were out, uh, weren't out, I would would always ride my bike on the other side of of the road. The Gennadics were scary. But then there was the Salis. The Salis was a huge family, the Roman Catholic. I think they had like 47 kids. It seemed that way. I played basketball with the eldest son, Alan. His dad was six foot nine, former NBA basketball player. Our team was pretty good. Um, but there's something about that home. There's always seemed like big babies running around, like a lot of chaos and craziness. But in despite, despite all of that, the word that sums up that household was warmth. It was a warm home. I felt comfortable there. I felt loved there. I felt enjoyed there. I felt invigorated there. In our passage, Paul describes what sort of family we've come into. And there's one word that characterizes the family of God, this side of heaven. And that one word is faith. In fact, if if, uh, Sarah knew how to needlepoint, I'm sure there would be a needlepoint hanging over the hearth back in their home that, that had the words Faith, beautifully um, stitched into it. Now, Paul, in his day, by his time, Judaism taught something quite different. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He came out of Judaism, so was Jesus. He was Jewish. Uh, 
But, by, but, but the rabbis in Paul's day would have said something. They would have said, no, no, Paul, you've got it all wrong. The family word for God's people is obedience. Look at Abraham. He was obedient. He earned the status of father of, of our family by his obedience and how he walked before the Lord. In our passage, Paul corrects such thinking. Paul says, We all got here the same way as our father Abraham, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, gosh, pastor, we know all that. You know, we know it's by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, gosh, it's been like 500 years, hasn't it, since uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg? You know, uh, we've been raised in the church. We know all about grace and faith. And um, can't, So can't we just fast forward th- through uh, chapter 4 and just get to chapter 5? No. <laughs> uh, there's a couple reasons why we won't skip to chapter 4. Like the early Christians, Paul's concern uh, here, Paul's concern for something that we share with them. We have a, we have a tendency uh, to wrongly live as if, our, if it, as if it's our obedience that earns our acceptance before God. And so we can pridefully pat ourselves on the back when we're doing good, or we can cower in shame for once again failing to not be so good. Another reason is this. If it's true, and I think it's true, that the gospel is the solution to all of the world's problems, then would it not be wise to allow Paul to trace us through the family tree all the way back to the origins of our father, the father who lived by faith? Abraham was the beginning of the covenant family of God, the family to which all believers now belong, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And justification, which is what we looked at last week, which is, which is God's declaration that one has been accepted and adopted into the family. We looked at that last week. But now today we look at, well, just what kind of family is this? And we got to get this right. Paul lays before us this critical truth. Membership in God's family depends on faith, and we must rest on this truth. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Our text we're going to divide into three areas. We're going to look at the paternity of faith, we're going to look at the promise of faith, and we're going to look at the perseverance of faith. The paternity, the promise, and the perseverance. First, the paternity of faith. Everyone who has ever been welcomed into God's family has entered the same way as Abraham, our spiritual father. From the very beginning, God has been justifying, accepting, and approving sinners in one way only, by grace, through faith. But many in Paul's day, as we've mentioned, many of the Jews in Paul's day took exception to this. They looked at Abraham and they marveled at his obedience. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but... Um, But they thought, therefore, that obedience is what makes us and keeps us approved in God's family. Paul says to them, you don't know your Bibles. What we see is Paul shows us that Abraham wasn't justified by works, but by faith. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. Paul is saying, if Abraham became acceptable uh, before God by just being this good man, that just being obedient, well, then Abraham had very much to, he could brag about or feel good about, but not before God. Remember, the problem with us human beings is that sin has penetrated deep inside of all of us so that, that even our good deeds aren't so good. We have forces inside of us that undercut our good intentions, don't we? But that doesn't mean our fellow human beings won't applaud us. Say someone donates $10 million to their alma mater and we say, wow, what a generous man that is. But God looks at the heart, right? Remember that from a few weeks back? Perhaps God looks and sees, well, he did it for notoriety so that he could have his name permanently etched into some granite outside of some big, beautiful hall. Or maybe God sees that, well, $10 million really wasn't that generous. After all, he was worth $10 billion. <laughs> Ray Ortland Jr., uh, who I'm indebted to, among others, this, uh, this morning, he writes, there's a world of difference Pay attention. World of difference between keeping God's law and using God's law. Keeping God's law is what faith does or tries to do. It's like a sick person going to a doctor and believing that the doctor has the cure and therefore follows the doctor's orders. That sick person doesn't want to slow down his recovery. He believes his doctor. He follows through and he gets better. That's keeping God's law. It's what faith moves towards. But using God's law is completely different. It's a mentality that says, I will comply with God's law as a leverage to get his attention and to position God to where he owes me. Now, that mentality might obey at a behavioral level, but it always turns poisonous. As Paul says here, that kind of obedience ends up boasting before God demanding things of God, saying, look what I've done. Now give me what I deserve. Verse 2 says Abraham wasn't justified by works. Verse 3 and 4, we see he's justified by grace through faith. Verse 3, for what does Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis fifteen six: Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In Genesis 15, 6, God told Abraham that though he and his wife had been receiving AARP magazine for over 50 years now, they would finally have a child. And not just a child, but more descendants than all the stars in the sky. You remember Abraham's story? He was a pagan living in a pagan land, worshiping pagan gods. When God, listen, God made the first move towards Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that had nothing to do with Abraham's obedience or disobedience. It was a promise of grace to him. And Abraham did what? He believed God. He simply believed. And what did God do? God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Now, here's where we get into what's called the accounting of faith. These words count 
or count it appear 11 times in our passage. Did you pick up on that? It's an accounting or banking term. When someone makes a deposit into your bank account, it's a good thing. Um, What does your bank do? Your bank credits your account. The deposit gets credited or counted towards your account. Now, here's where the gospel um, appears to be way too good to be true. Before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your account of righteousness, right? Your account of righteousness was not zero. (laughs) You were maintaining a negative balance. But what we see is that when you turn in faith to Christ, God graciously places into your account all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's quite an exchange. That's quite a deposit. Paul drives home the nature of this um, gift of righteousness in verse 4. He says that when people work, they get paid a wage as a payment, right? Your paycheck isn't a gift to you, is it? It's something you deserve. Could you imagine if your boss walks up to you late on a Friday afternoon with with your paycheck in in your hand and he says, hey, I I have a gift for you for those 40 hours you worked this week, right? You'd walk out of there, you'd go home and you'd you'd write a country song. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. But that song's already been written, as you know. Um, In the same way, if you try to work your way into God's debt, where you're trying to place into your account some sort of righteousness of your own, what reality Paul is saying is then, then you cannot have it as a gift, right? We must know this. Membership in God's family is by a gift. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you belong to God's family then, God's accounting system has come upon your life. God does all the depositing of righteousness. You just simply log on and see what's there, right? The righteousness that you receive by faith is a gift. All right. In verse 5, Paul presents us with a DNA test. There's a paternity test uh, to see if you are part of God's family or not. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that's God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You can know you belong to the family of God if you're not one who works, but rather one who rests. I'm not saying Paul's saying we're supposed to be lazy. Paul is not saying that there's no use for God's law in our lives. No, what Paul is saying is that those who belong to God's family do not work for God's approval. Rather, they rest in the approval that has already been deposited into their account, the approval that they already have by virtue of faith in Christ. At least we should rest. Verse 16, um, when we pair it with verse 5, this becomes a little more apparent. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. 
Paul is saying that all who genuinely belong in God's family are people who rest in grace. Not that we always do it. Not that we always do it well. There are times when we feel pretty awful about how we're walking with the Lord. And our natural reaction is to commit to working harder to put some righteousness back into our account. You find that tendency in your own life? Problem is, often when we work harder, we fail harder. Or worse, we think we finally got it right. And then we begin to silently boast before God of our accomplishments and boast in front of other Christians. Paul says, no, the child of God rests in God's grace. She she knows her identity is secure, and if she stumbles, and she will, does she work her way back to God? No, she rests. She rests in the acceptance that is already hers. Yes, she repents, but she also looks with eyes of faith at her Lord, who counts her righteous simply by her faith. If you don't believe this, well, Paul gives us an example in verses 6 through 8. The example is King David. King David lived by God's accounting system. He quotes, um, Paul quotes Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Now, this entire psalm is a recounting of how David at first um, did not confess his sin and his bones wasted away day by day. But then he acknowledged his sins and God forgave his transgressions. And, And David sang, blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. See that word again? David's life was characterized by an ongoing understanding of God's accounting system. He finished the psalm by saying, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust is a resting word, isn't it? As much I could say about verses 9 through 12, it's kind of confusing, all the circumcision, uncircumcision, blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of confusing. What does it have to do with the paternity of faith? Just a couple quick points. Paul is saying here that that, um, the family of God has been redefined in two important ways. One, the family now contains Gentiles. And two, the family contains Jews, as it always has, but not so many as you think. All right? So God's family contains Gentiles. And and Paul asks these series of questions that that causes the reader to take out their biblical timeline, right? Um, When did Abraham respond in faith to God's promise? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Paul reminds them that, that his readers, that Abraham believed God first, and then he was circumcised. What does this mean? Well, it, it means that all of the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, that's me and you, we have the same opportunity as Abraham did to be accepted by God by faith, not through works or through circumcision. He also says that uh, God's family contains Jews, but not all. Who are the Jews that are included and whose are the ones that were excluded? Well, 
the Jews that are included are not just the ones who have the outward sign of circumcision, which is the sign of membership in God's family, but also, as verse 11 states, walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul points this back to a little bit earlier in Romans where, where he said it's not... It's, it, Circumcision is great, but the most important thing is to have the inward reality of the circumcised heart, a heart that beats for God and, and, and is thankful for the grace that he has received. All right, that's the paternity of faith. God offered Abraham a gift of grace, and Abraham believed. And so too, all of the offspring of Abraham, by God's grace, we live believing lives. We share the same faith with all of God's family. Now for the promise of faith. These next two go a little quicker. What is the promise that God gave Abraham? God promised Abraham that the whole world would experience blessing and renewal through his family, through his offspring. If I were to walk in here this morning with a pillbox in my hand and say that I have all kinds of these pills, and just one, one pill for every human being um, will take away all the illness and all the disease um, forever. It will be cured. Perhaps you'd roll your eyes and laugh me off stage. But you do so not because you don't long for such an audacious cure. You do so because it seems so far-fetched. God has promised Abraham what the world truly longs for, but it won't let itself come to believe, for it seems too far-fetched. God has promised far more than curing all illness and disease. God has promised a complete renewal of the entire cosmos, a purging of all evil and corruption, including uh, human beings, evil people. But also, he will purge the world of this sin that pervades and has its fingers upon all things. Every tear will be wiped away, and a new day will dawn upon earth. And all who have longed to see that day in Christ Jesus will participate in a day, uh, of, of one day after another, of joyful, productive, delightful living for all eternity. God first gave this promise to Adam and Eve right after they sinned. God said, I'm gonna, there's a, an offspring of the woman is going to kill the serpent. That's a picture or portrayal of Christ who was to come. But the promise becomes familial to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. All the families of the world are going to be blessed through you. People are going to know the goodness of God through my family. That was Abraham's calling. Who receives this promise? Well, all the spiritual offspring of Abraham. In verse 13, God says, Abraham and his, um, God promised Abraham and his offspring that he and they would be heirs of the world. This is God's gift to, the, to, the, for, to his people to receive by faith. Christian, you're an heir of God's promises. A little bit later in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul says these words. Listen closely. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christian, you've inherited a promise. 
And this promise is a guarantee. It rests on God's gracious guarantee. Verse 13, this promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Christian, God's promise is this, that you are now and you will one day fully be uh, in the promised kingdom uh, to come. We experience it now, but it is yet to fully come. And even more important than that is that this promise cannot be taken away. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, God's grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. What do these words tell us? That this audacious promise of God can never be withdrawn from us. No matter how good a child of God you are or how bad a child of God you think you are, Paul says that this is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Why? Because it depends on God's grace, not on our obedience. God will deliver you to that glorious day. That's the promise of faith. Now for the perseverance of faith. You see this in verses 17 to 25. You know, I don't know if I have to make this clear to you, but this promised age to come isn't here yet. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, There's much hardship and toil and suffering ahead for the family members of God. We need perseverance, perseverance of faith. There are three points regarding perseverance of faith that Paul shows us. First, he says, the perseverance of faith begins with God. God speaks to us in verse 17, and he says to us, he says, it's not there, I'm just paraphrasing. He says that with me, there is life out of death, and there is power over weakness. Now, let me read verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham's body was dead. He was too old to procreate. Sarah's body was barren. She had no latent power within her to conceive. And yet what is impossible for powerless dead human beings is not impossible for God. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let that sink in. Paul, Paul is saying, look at what the grace of God does for weak sinners. You and I are weak and powerless to bring about any lasting good for ourselves. But God has no such limitations. In fact, God only works his life-giving power into self-proclaimed dead weaklings. And make no mistake, it is God who gets the honors. Who is it that made Abraham the father of many nations, though he and his wife were dead and powerless? God speaks and he says, I, I have made you the father of many nations. Only God can give life where there once was death. Only God can speak into existence things that do not exist. 
God promised to repopulate the earth through an AARP charter member. The man so old that the odds were against him, so old that, that it, would, that it would, would make anybody laugh. And guess what? That's what Abraham and Sarah did, right? They laughed. It was hilarious. But then he believed. Abraham believed and he trusted God. Though the barrier seemed insurmountable, Abraham walked in faith. See, the real barrier to our faith isn't the odds. For God trumps all of the odds. Ortland says the real barrier to faith is whether we want God in our lives. Really believing costs us. Really believing, some, really believing something will take over our lives and change us. What helped Abraham was, in verse 20, he gave glory to God. He humbled himself before God and said, my life is not about me anymore. It's about you now. Go for it, Lord. So do you see, faith is not making ourselves think that things are better than they really are. Faith is looking at our real problems and then looking beyond to the promises of God and saying to him, display your glory in me. Prove again how wonderful you are in me for the sheer hilarity of it. Our perseverance and our faith begins with God's faithfulness towards us. If you belonged to God, if you belong to God's people, he has pledged to you life out of death power out of weakness. Now the question is, do you believe that? Next is the perseverance of faith, um, is that it also hopes in God. This is in verse 18 through 22. Because God has given his people promises, we become people who hope against hope. Did you see that in verse 18? In hope... Abraham believed against hope <laughs> that he should become the father of many nations. Now, to hope against hope is uh, its idiomatic expression that, that means to hope despite being deprived of any earthly grounds for hope. Abraham had no earthly grounds for ever having a child with Sarah let alone to see his offspring become as numerous as the stars in heaven and to bring God's blessing. Uh, to this world. But he does have God's guarantee in verse 16, a guarantee that's by grace through faith. Abraham knows that he cannot. And know that he cannot, God can and God will. God's promised that he would. God is true. Paul shows us how Abraham's hope in God produced perseverance of faith. In verse 19 and 20, we see that, that therefore because of this this. Um, hope against hope that um, Abraham did not weaken in faith and that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Instead, picking up in verse 20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now, let me make a cautionary caveat here. Sometimes Christians, when we look in the Bible and we see promises, sometimes we bring them into our lives kind of out of context or we misappropriate promises. And, and certainly this is a, is a case where some Christians will say, you know, I, um, I long to have kids and I have the same faith as Abraham. 
Therefore, I'm, I'm expecting from God that I'm going to have kids, just as Abraham and Sarah. And it's true, infertility is a very disheartening circumstance in many people's lives. But we need to be careful how we apply Scripture, how we apply promises to our own lives. This promise of a child was given to Abraham specifically so that from Sarah and him, there would be a child through which we would come to experience the Abraham's family of faith. It was specific to him and not to us. But God does have promises for us. God's promise to bless the world through his offspring has landed upon us. God's promise to renew and restore creation and one day bring about this day of redemption uh, which brings us eternal delight. We, we have that promise. We share that as God's people. We share this calling to bring the good news to the nations around us, just as Abraham had. And so for us, to hope against all hope looks like this. When the world looks so completely broken and sinful, when, the, when society mocks God and mocks the people of God, when evil and sin is crouching at your door, When hoping seems hopeless, believe. Believe the promise of God to all his children. As Isaiah prophesied, there will one day be a day when God gives to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So the child of God is to walk every day in faith, not blind faith, believing faith. We know that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And we know that all have gone before us has lived this life of faith, of, of hoping against all hope, despite what things look like here on earth. Perseverance of faith begins with God, hopes in God, and the perseverance of faith returns us to God. That's the final part, 23 and 24. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, uh, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul returns us where? Back to God. God who raised our Lord from the dead. To walk in faith, to walk with perseverance of faith, means that we keep returning to the grace of God. We keep going back to the cross of Christ. To remind ourselves that we have already been counted righteous in God's sight, along with our father Abraham. Perhaps you're saying, not so fast, Mark. Abraham lived long before Christ. How could could he have known about Christ's sacrifice? Well, because Abraham experienced the gospel long before Christ. You know, eventually, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah, and um, a son was born, Isaac. And by the time Isaac was a teen, maybe in his late 20s, God said to Abraham, take your son Isaac, take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there. In faith, Abraham obeyed. 
Scripture says that Abraham believed that, that God would raise his son from the dead if need be. So Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, but God stayed his hand. And then God called into existence something that did not exist. There he saw a ram in the bush. A ram that was a substitute now for Isaac and took his place on the altar. Abraham sacrificed that ram instead. This act of God's grace pointed Abraham to the reality of the cross, though the cross has not yet come. That there's an even greater substitution that God, that God longs to give to his children. God offered up his own son. He delivered Jesus up to the cross for, for our own trespasses. And yet God raised him from the dead. He gave life where there was no life. Friends, we're able to persevere in the faith because we begin by looking to God who gives us promises and we soak in those promises. And we continue to hope in spite of the hopelessness. And we continually return to the cross where we gaze upon our Lord who is dead. And yet God called life into existence where no life existed. Maybe you're here today and you do not feel yourself worthy of God's acceptance. Maybe you look at your life and you see all the failures and all the sins that have entangled you. And you conclude that God can never accept me as his child. Guess what? That's the place where every child of God begins in their entrance into the family. Though the world doesn't love the unlovable, God does. Let me tell you this story. Pastor Tony Campolo is in, in Hawaii, and he couldn't sleep. I guess it was jet lag or something. So he gets up, and, uh, and he goes, and he just tries to find a restaurant that's open. He finds a diner. It's like a greasy spoon. And um, he walks in. It's like 3.30 in the morning. He sits down. It's a, kind of a slimy place, and the guy, like, barely washes his hands and puts a donut down and a cup of coffee. And Campolo, I guess, kind of begrudgingly starts eating. At least it was quiet. Well, that's until by eight or nine scantily clad prostitutes walked in the door, making a ruckus, taking over the place. One of the girls offered um, the, hey, it's my birthday tomorrow. I'm turning 39. One of her, quote, friends riled at her. And said, oh, okay, Agnes, so what do you want us to do? You want us to throw you a birthday party? You want us to bake you a cake and sing happy birthday? No, said Agnes. I've never had a birthday party. Why would I expect one now? It was then Campolo hatched a plan. He said to Harry, who was the guy behind the counter who turned out to be the owner, he said, Harry, how about we throw a birthday party for Agnes? Does she come here often? She's here every night like clockwork, her and her friends. All right, I tell you what we'll do. I'll be back tomorrow night, and I'm going to bring decorations, and I'm going to buy her a cake from the kitchen. You heard, no, you're not buying her a cake. We're going to make her one. That was his wife. They, they loved Agnes. So Campolo said, it's done. And the next day, he shows up a little bit earlier, and he brings in streamers and banners and balloons. And he has a big sign that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And Campolo points out, he's like, 
the word must have gotten out because it seems like all the prostitutes in Hawaii showed up for Agnes's birthday party. Agnes walks in the door and tears well up in her eyes and she sees a birthday cake. She didn't even know how to blow out the candles. Finally, she blew them out and they, they said, well, cut the cake. She goes, well, hold on. Can I do one thing first? Can I take this cake back home? It's only two blocks away. I want to show it to my family. She left. Here's Campolo, surrounded by all these prostitutes. He didn't really know what to do. So he just started praying for Agnes. And when he finished, Harry said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of, what kind of church do you belong to? He says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, then he, uh, he almost sneered, and he said, no, you don't. There's no such church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd become a member. If you're here today, and you do not feel worthy, For whatever reason, know this. No one who's ever entered God's family was ever worthy. Our worthiness comes from Christ. It's a gift. God loves sinners. He's been welcoming them into his family since time began. The rest of us here who share the faith of Abraham May we be reminded of the grace that we have received. May may we, when we falter in sin, not try to work our way back into God's graces, but may we rest on the grace that we already have simply by faith in Jesus Christ. May we be a people who look to the promises of God. May we find the perseverance of faith to endure until that day that Christ brings about. A day when faith is no longer necessary. A day when the Bible says faith becomes sight. And our sinful life now will will truly be dead. And the life of Christ will fully enliven us, both body and soul. That's a day coming. It's our inheritance. It's up in heaven being kept for us there until Christ returns. May this hope be your hope against all hope. Let's pray. Father, we're not worthy. We know that. But we also know we are so incredibly loved by you. A love that is hard to fathom, but a love that we must embrace. For in it there is our hope. We thank you that our righteousness is a gift, that we do not earn it, but rather Christ has earned it for us and it's been accounted to us. May we walk in this truth. May we, may we be people who not work, but people who rest in your grace, we pray. Amen.